right, so we have just begun a series in which I'll be doing a string of sermons on a sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today we'll be looking at his second beatitude in Matthew 5-4, but before we do that, I just want to give you a reminder of a couple of updates concerning our special Sunday evening class that we're doing currently Uh, Our third installment of Can We Talk About This, in which we're taking a look at what Scripture says about women's role in the church. I I could get Adrian signed back up here and just want to reiterate today, don't come at 5.30. That's our normal, normally scheduled programming is then. But today and next week, both are both going to be beginning at 1.30. Uh, next week, because we'll have a guest speaker, Dr. John Mark Hicks from David Lipscomb University. Dr. Hicks, Dr. Hicks has spent more time and study on this subject than all of us in here put together. And so he's a great resource for us. And of particular interest um, is his study of the history of the Church of Christ and the Restoration Movement and how we've approached Scripture historically and how we've come to our interpretation of women's role in the church and so how that shaped our belief and our practice. And you might be surprised to find out that we haven't always practiced it consistently in all the seasons of our history. And so just what does that mean? What does that look like? So I'm looking forward to you being here and enjoying him. He'll also be doing a class and he'll be preaching for us and then we'll have that 1.30 uh, special study. So we anticipated that need because we knew he needed to catch a flight later that Sunday night. What we couldn't anticipate this week is that the Cowboys would win their playoff game last week. So they play tonight at 5.30 and all of you unspiritual people would not have come. (laughs) Texans fans would never skip Bible study to watch a game in the playoffs because we would never make the playoffs. (laughs) So uh, anyway, we want all the unspiritual people here. So we moved our study to one. 30. Okay, so don't forget that. Second, as you know, at our week, if you've been coming to our weekly presentations, we then have some optional breakout rooms, four rooms, where we have an elder in each room and a minister is in each room, at least one elder, so that we can have dialogue and questions and answer times and discussion in that. And so we have that each week, but this week we're going to add a fifth room that's going to be available for women only. And Melissa Shaver, our children's minister and one of our elders' wives, Becky McKeever, they both participated in this most recent study with the elders a couple of years ago. And we wanted to provide a space for women who might just enjoy dialoguing dialoguing about this, about your experiences or what we're studying with just other women. So for obvious reasons, the elders really want women in their rooms. You know, your voices are very important. In this, So we're not pushing you there, but if there is anyone that would be more comfortable dialoguing about it with just other ladies or just that's attractive to you, we will have that room for you beginning tonight. And finally, attendance has been spectacular these first two weeks, so thank you for prioritizing this. But for those of you who haven't, uh, we've noticed and we've asked some of you why you're not coming, and many of you are telling us it's just because you don't have strong feelings about this subject in any particular direction, or you just trust the elders so implicitly that you know you don't you don't feel like you need to be there. But if those are your thoughts, we want to hear those thoughts as well. And so we really encourage you to come. Plus, this is just a rich and unique fellowship opportunity in this Sunday evening context, Sunday afternoon, today and next week. Uh, So we really want to encourage you to come. All right, so Sermon on the Mount. 
Again, after Matthew spends four chapters of his gospel building intrigue about this Jesus, establishing that he's no ordinary man, he's not even an ordinary prophet or rabbi, he's something else. We get to chapter 5 where Matthew notes this is where he began teaching. And so he begins this teaching not with maybe what we would expect, commands of God to follow, correctives on where you're getting it wrong. He doesn't start there. Instead, he starts with these very unique and surprising proclamations. He makes some proclamations. We call them the Beatitudes. And today we're going to be looking at the second Beatitude. It's in Matthew 5, 4, where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So you remember this word blessed is makarios in the Greek, and it, it means fortunate or privileged. Privileged are those, and we looked at that last week. And he says this surprise, most of these are very surprising. You would not feel privileged to be what he is saying is a situation where you're privileged. Last week he said when you're at the end of your rope, privileged are you, well off are you when you have no resources left. That's what he says last week. And he says that because you're exceptionally close to receiving the kingdom of heaven when you're in that situation. This week is equally surprising when he says, blessed are those who are mourn, who are sad. You're in a privileged position. And the reason they're in a privileged position, you are in a privileged position when you're sad, is because comfort is available to the sad. So I want to preach this one a little backwards. I want to focus on that, this, what I think, and what they, those first hearers would most certainly have thought as really good news. This is really, it, we had his famous first words last week, but this week is his first words about what God's here to deliver. When he could have said he was here to deliver anything, truth, correction, you know, whatever he could have said, he decides to use the word comfort. That's what he's here to deliver. God is here to comfort. And just a quick reminder that when he says he's going to comfort you, he's not saying he's going to make you comfortable. There's a huge gap between receiving comfort and being comfortable. And it's almost a shame they're related in the English language, those words, because there's a huge gap between them. The difference between being comforted and being comfortable is as wide as the difference between our Zimbabwe kids with those canned donations that you make out there. You pay for a daily survival meal for those kids so that they get some food so their body can make it another 24 hours. That's, that's comfort. And comfortable is having all kinds of food to eat whenever you want it recreationally because it tastes good until you're obese. That's a comfortable lifestyle. He's saying the first, you'll be comforted. And it got me to thinking, what does Jesus mean by suggesting that God comforts? How does God comfort? One of my sabbaticals that you've blessed me with, I spent a good long time on this one beatitude. Just reading the life of Jesus through this lens in that question in particular. And I realized it didn't take long 
for the disciples to know exactly what Jesus meant by God is a God of comfort. Okay? It, it didn't take long. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's the sermon. And then Matthew 8, Matthew records Jesus going into ministry. And just scene after scene after scene we see there. And so I read all those scenes through this lens of how God delivers comfort. Because Jesus demonstrates a wide array of categories through which God is available and intent on comforting. So you don't have to turn there. But if you want to, you, I'm not going to have them up here. You can turn to Matthew 8 if you want. And I'm just going to do a quick survey of a bunch of the stories here through this lens. Listen to this. So when Jesus came down from the mountainside, a man from leprosy, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. So right out the gate, Matthew, it's like Matthew wants us to know that God comforts by making the unclean clean. Church, where do you feel unclean? Where do you feel dirty? Then in verse 5, Jesus goes to Capernaum, and a centurion, that's a Roman soldier, comes to him asking for help. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I'll go and heal him. And his servant was healed at that very hour. There's more going on here, but what I want to point out is, is it's like Matthew wants us to know that God has the power to relieve terrible suffering. Church, where are you suffering terribly? Where is someone you love or know of suffering terribly? Next scene, when Jesus then comes into Peter's house, he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her. And so another healing here, but then he adds this. And she got up and began to wait on him, on Jesus. It's like Matthew wants us to know that God comforts by enabling us to do meaningful service for him. Where are you longing to feel useful? Where are you longing to feel, to not feel worthless and unable to serve? Then verse 16, evening comes and many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word. It's like Matthew wants us to know as Jesus continues to exemplify the ministry of God here on earth, that God comforts by driving away what torments us. By just driving it away. Church, where are you tormented? Where is that happening? Verse 23 of chapter 8, he gets into a boat and his disciples follow him and this furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. He was sleeping, Jesus was. The disciples wake him up and say, Lord, save us, we're gonna drown. He replied, oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. It's like Matthew wants us to know that God comforts by being Lord over all earthly circumstances, no matter how big, no matter how scary. Church, what circumstances have come upon you that making you afraid then turn to Matthew 9 at the beginning it says some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat Jesus saw their faith get this he said to the paralytic take heart son your sins are forgiven 
He's going to go on and heal him, but he adds this and he does this first. It's as if Matthew wants us to know. Hear me. He wants us to know that God comforts by forgiving you of your sin. Church, where do you need forgiveness of sin? Verse 9, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew. That's who's writing this. Matthew's now doing a little personal testimony. He sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He's a tax collector. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. It's like Matthew wants us to know that God comforts by calling us from our meaningless or perhaps compromised lives and into the adventure and goodness of, of his agenda, of his life. Where do you need revolutionary change? Brand new direction. Then verse 18 in chapter 9, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, my daughter's just died. But come and put your hand on her and she'll live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Jesus entered the ruler's house. He said, go away. There were a bunch of people there. Go away. This girl's not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him because she was dead. After the crowd had been put outside, he went and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. It's like Matthew goes all the way with how God comforts. He goes all the way and wants us to know that God's comfort extends even beyond the grave, even beyond death. Maybe the greatest comfort of all is in knowing that even death, everyone's universal enemy, sting is taken away. We just ask, do you believe in this God? Like as you go through your day and you go through your life, do you believe in this God? That this is true, that this is objectively true, that this is the kind of God that the God that Jesus is introducing is? If not, I want to invite you to fire your God and consider mine. And consider Christ's, the one he's talking about, the one he's revealing There is comfort in just knowing that comfort is coming. And this is an important question. Do you believe? It is an important question to Jesus throughout the rest of Scripture. But I was reminded of it in the next scene. Matthew 9, 18. Sorry, Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And he asked them, do you believe I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Church, do you believe that God is a God of comfort, that he wants to comfort you, that he will comfort you? Because I think this story and all of Scripture Suggest that when it comes to kingdom things, when it comes to kingdom realities, we do not get to enjoy them unless we believe in them. They, they remain, it's not that they're not real when you don't believe in them. It's that you don't enjoy them. You don't 
experience them. You separate yourself from them when you don't believe in them. And I think that's what's important in experiencing God as a God of comfort. How many situations do you come in and you just declare, sometimes verbally, I will never get over this. I will never be comforted in this. For you, that may be true. But for the believer, it may be accessed according to your faith. It will be done to you. Paul believed it. He believed this. And he thought the promise of this beatitude, that God's a God of comfort, this revelation was something worth praising. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, listen to how much he mentions comfort. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So there's even an extra motivation here. He loves you, that's enough for him, but he loves everyone. And so he's gonna comfort you. Just like he says in Corinthians, he gives us the ministry of reconciliation because he reconciled us. He gives us a ministry. When we receive the comfort that he gives to us in any category of life that we need it, he makes us ministers of that comfort to others. So Paul calls him the God of all comfort. But going to back now to the first part of Jesus' beatitude, we have to notice that not all will be comforted. He's the God of all comfort. He's capable of it. But not all will be comforted. No, comforting is for, according to this proclamation, this beatitude, it's for these privileged ones, these blessed ones. Who? It's those who mourn. There's no way around it. As I studied this, Comfort is for people who know how to feel. Comfort is for people that have sensitized hearts, not crusty, numb, stoic hearts. It's for those that have learned how to feel. It was Charles Allen in a commentary that he had on this verse that pointed me to this first. He says, only those who feel can mourn. Well, it's those who mourn that will be comforted. So you need to be able to feel. You can't be desensitized. It reminded me of Paul talking in Ephesians 4, describing people who've lost sensitivity. They don't live in their heart. They don't know how to do that. They've lost that. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's a good description of the unsettled, uncomforted soul and it all begins with losing sensitivity hardening feelings or emotions get a pretty bad rap these days i don't think it was true back when jesus was preaching this but it's become true for us at least the expression of them gets a bad rap i'm not sure why all i can think of really is that satan has just taken some serious ground in this area he didn't want you comforted, so he makes it culturally awkward at a minimum, if not totally inappropriate, to show emotion. I 
I can't tell you how many times I've had people in my office when they are taking the mask off and they're kind of getting to that place of tenderness and feelings start welling up and it, you know, there's just words that can't be expressed in any way but by coming out your eyes. And they, they grab the tissue and they will literally declare out loud, I, I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. Where did, where did that come from? Why not? I know I'm not alone probably having experienced someone in the room getting emotional and them excusing themselves from that room. You've had that happen, right? Someone excuses themselves because they don't want to be seen crying. I also bet I'm not alone that I've been that guy. Totally taken a knee to that, that I have felt it and I don't want it to be seen and so I've left the room. Why? This beatitude isn't licensed to be controlled by our feelings. That's not what it's saying, and you know it. So don't, don't defend your inability to cry or your absolute determination to remain stoic. Try to be objective about everything is how we kind of smoke screen this insensitivity. This isn't licensed to be controlled. That's not the point. He doesn't say, blessed are those who lose themselves or drown themselves in their feelings. He didn't say, fortunate are the ones who throw themselves or others big pity parties all the time. He's not saying that. Blessed are those who allow their actions to be controlled by how they feel. Or, or fortunate are those, and blessed is every feeling you have about everything because they are always right. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, one of the things I find myself repeating, I think I said this a couple weeks ago as we were moving into this difficult conversation, can we talk about this, is your feelings are real, they are not always right. But just because that's true doesn't mean we slam down our feelings. Stoicism isn't the answer. Stuffing isn't the answer. Numbness isn't the answer. So we need to honor that Jesus is talking about a sensitive heart here. Something that's sensitized, not desensitized, not, not in the worst way you can imagine talking about, oh, so sensitive. We're not talking about that. We're talking about just sensitive, just human. Real, available, accessible. And he's not talking about all feelings either. He's talking about mourning in this one. The Greek word for mourning is pentheo. It includes both the feeling and the expression of sadness. It's, it's, it's the feeling of sadness. That's seen. It's it's noted. It's noticeable. That's what he's saying. Those who do that, those who are there, those who are sad, they're the ones that are in a fortunate position. I was really pondering this idea, like I said, on that sabbatical, and I found my old notes on this, and I looked at it, and I and I, I made note then. I put this down. I said, this feeling maybe the appropriate emotion that heals all emotional troubles. Sadness might be, I don't think Jesus is promoting sadness. I want you to be sad. I think he's just saying sadness, he's elevating it as spiritually productive. You access something of God when you allow yourself to be sad. You do not have to go searching for sadness. You don't got to drum it up. You just have to have eyes to see. You have to have eyes to see 
everything the way God does. And then there's plenty that can make you sad. And while he's promoting, he's not promoting, elevating sadness as making you fortunate because comfort's available to you, he takes other emotions that tend to consume us, Christians as well, and he and other Bible writers literally say, don't do those. It's the mourner that will be comforted. It's the sad that will be comforted, not the guilty, not the angry, not the worried. Those are feelings, and they can consume us, and they often do, don't they? But about the feeling of worry, Jesus literally, if the the, the direct command, if you're ever going to find one, he says, don't do it. And so blessed are those who worry, for they will be comforted. No, he says, no, don't worry. Just don't do that. That's in your power. That's what you do. You don't worry about your life. Anger, it's Paul that says, don't let it linger for like even a day. You're going to get triggered. You're going to get angry. There's even righteous anger, right? Righteous indignation. But I think even that's included here. Don't let it linger. It's dangerous. Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. You remember from our spiritual warfare series, because it gives the devil a foothold. He didn't say, blessed are the angry, for they will be comforted. No. He says, don't do it. Settle that. Don't let it linger. And on guilt, Jesus didn't come to make us feel guilty. He came to take that away. We all know John 3, 16. John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Good thing, since we do a good job of that on ourselves. And we walk around with guilt. He didn't come to make us feel guilty. He came to relieve us of our guilt, to take it away. If you think about it, all three of these that we seem to, even if we are stoic, we embrace these. It's like you're not really stoic, you just embrace these. Where did, you, where did we get the idea that these are okay, let alone productive? If you think about them, they're all associated with control. When I'm upset about something I've done in the past, something I can't control in the past, I'm liable to feel guilty. I can't control. I can't go back and undo that. When here in the present, something is not as I think it should be or as I want it, I get angry. I can't control that, and so I get angry. Something in the future that I can do nothing about right now because it's in the future, I worry. I can't control the future, so I worry. Church, who is in control? God is in control. These emotions that we often indulge and sit around with are not productive. They don't lead to anything good. But sadness? Jesus elevates and says, yeah, it does. That's allowed. Sadness. Sadness is the key that unlocks comfort. Mourning is the key that unlocks it. And again, Sadness is not hard to come by. Not for Christians, at least it shouldn't be. We shouldn't have desensitized hearts. Not as Christians. We've got a spirit in there. A Holy Spirit. My sin, my brokenness, 
makes me sad. Oh, it's just such a small line over to guilt. That won't, that won't work. And it's not God's will, but sadness. If I'm sad about my sin and my brokenness, that'll be comforted. The sin and brokenness of others makes me sad. Oh, it's just a little jump over to anger, especially when the sin and brokenness of others is issued forth on people I love, like my kids. I want to be angry, but that's not going to work. That's not going to be productive. Sadness, sadness, mourning that that's the case. That will be addressed by the kingdom. The brokenness of the world we live in, it's not hard to spot, right? It's not hard to spot. It makes me sad. In every way that this world is not aligned with the kingdom, it, it makes me sad. Oh, but it, a lot of times, just little, there's just a paper-thin wall from there to worry. And it's just making me anxious and worry and feel like I got to do something or say something or post something because that's not going to work. That won't be met and addressed by the kingdom. Paul and Jesus say, don't do those. Do sad. Mourn. Cry. Because there's comfort in that. You're in a fortunate, well-off position if you know how to be sad. Right? That's what Jesus says. Because you will be comforted. We don't always feel like that, do we? We get into some sadness. We feel like there's going to be no end. And all the only way is to lead to despair. And so what do we do? We do. We, we push it down. We ignore it. We, we, we distract ourselves. Because it feels like endless. Jesus says it's not. It's not. Learn to mourn. And the God of all comfort, who will comfort you in all your troubles, is available to you. I had a roommate, Chris Gonzalez. He's actually, y'all have heard me talk about him before. I sometimes spend my three days in sabbatical with him as a mentor. He's a professor with John Mark Hicks over in Dave Liscomb. Chris introduced me to John Mark so that we could have him come. And uh, Chris, way back when we were roommates in Houston, right out of college, just starting our adult life, he, he prayed a prayer in his prayer closet that he told me he was praying that has stuck with me ever since. He said he was praying for God to let his heart break for whatever breaks his. It stuck with me all these years. That stuck with me that he prayed that. And I've prayed it sometimes because it is an inconvenient, vulnerable way to live. But according to Jesus, it is the way. It is the way. And Jesus says if you can develop that kind of skill, that kind of God-like sensitivity, that he'll meet you there with his comfort. I know you got stuff you need comfort in. I know something on this list is something you're needing to address. Maybe you have ignored it. Maybe you're just worrying about it. Maybe you're just angry. Maybe 
Maybe you need to transition it into sadness. Let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses. They're going to move around the room here to be available to you, to just be with you in this. You know, there's an old, there was an old tradition in churches, but I think it was at the late 1800s it started. I think primarily Methodist churches. They had something up front of their buildings they called the mourner's bench. You know, we have a baptistry for good reason because we're elevating that part of the Christian life. They had also the mourner's bench because they were elevating this part of the Christian life. And they would invite everybody after the message because the message usually is a contrast to how things should be in God's eyes. And they wanted to encourage mourning, not anger, not guilt, not worry, but sadness. And so they said, come to the mourner's bench. Why? To cry, to hurt, to be sad, and to let God meet them there. Please bring that back. Please bring that maybe for the first time. What do you need to allow yourself to be saddened by? It won't spiral you down. It's okay. Jesus promises you're in a fortunate position because that's where comfort will meet you. Let's stand and let's sing. And if there's anyone who needs comfort today, please come.